All right, you're watching. No, you're listening to another episode. Sean, you absolutely asked me if this episode of the CTO Advisor is video or audio only, and it's audio only. Only, Sean, introduce yourself. Hey, everyone. Uh, it's great to be back on the podcast. I had a lot of fun the last time we chatted. Um, my name is Sean Mullaney, and I am the CTO at Algolia, who is one of the world's uh, largest search-as-a-service company. So. You know, you teased me. I didn't know if Algolia was a country, small country, or if it was a software company. Well, we are the world's second biggest search engine behind Google, so we kind of uh, serve enough traffic to be a small country. <laughs> So we teased this episode during the last sponsored podcast. So this isn't sponsored for those of you who listened to the podcast that we talked about kind of an introductory to uh, AI-based search. Great podcast. It goes over the basics of AI, talking about vectors all the way to how uh, you defeat hallucination and search for products, et cetera great podcast go listen to that but i think we wanted to hit two topics in this podcast and in the follow in the follow editorial podcast which was going from a software culture to a ai culture and then secondly going to a multi-cloud operating model which intrigued me during the last conversation so, Sean, first off, most of us listening to this podcast have software houses. We understand the CICD pipeline. We've either there, we're developing that, we're getting to a point where we're treating our infrastructure as code. Software development is starting to become or has become this table stakes for most IT shops. Now we're being disrupted and we can expect some disruption as part of the industry with AI. How should we start thinking about AI versus software development or AI development versus software development? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And I know a lot of people are going through this at the moment. So um, there's a big difference between running a um, software engineering cultured company um, and running a company uh, and a team that is building AI software. Um, and I'll talk to you about a few of the major things that are the difference. Um, firstly, when you think about software, um, most of the time you're able to scope out both the problem, the technical requirements, what are the acceptance criteria for the user in advance? And you can kind of use a, a kind of waterfall model where you design the solution, you put the JIRA tickets together, and you can estimate how long it's going to take for the project to finish. And you can do this across a whole bunch of projects, and you have a certain amount of certainty that when you put in a certain amount of investment, you'll get a certain return for that based on the software's value. Um, so it feels quite deterministic once you get a good system in place for your team. Um, all of that changes when you're building AI software. Um, Firstly, you're not really able to, in advance, estimate how long it's going to take to train an algorithm and to continually iterate in production on it. Um, so the first thing is, is you can do a prototype, but every single time you want to test it, you got to put it into production because the only real like um, results that you can get back is on real production data. Um, and you've got to go through a very fast experimental scientific process 
So you think a bit about like how scientists do R&D is they have a hypothesis. They then go and test the hypothesis. In this case, you might test some new features, a new algorithmic approach, and then you go and get your data. And then you analyze the data and you've either proven your hypothesis and improved or your hypothesis was, uh, was not proved. Um, and your progress is a function of the speed and the velocity of how you experiment. And so it's not as deterministic as something like designing a, a piece of software where you can do that in advance. Um, so definitely some pretty big differences when you're thinking about approaching a, a kind of AI problem versus a traditional software problem. So let me think about this from kind of my infrastructure lens. We deal with this in load testing. I, I can, a typical problem I faced earlier in my career, we did uh, what seems like table stakes today, but we're streaming video to 12,000 clients. Yep. The clients were spread across the U.S., I could load test the system over a LAN and, you know, we could put 20, 25,000 robotic clients against that system. But what we couldn't simulate is the diversity of the clients across, you know, 200 different sites, different WAN speeds, et cetera. You know, infrastructure is like that. You can't test infrastructure for load. AI, is it a similar challenge that you can't test for the variety of data? You know, you have what you, you have the data that you train your model on, but yes. when you put it in production, you know, you, you can't simulate the scale of other people testing against that data set. Yeah. I mean, when you develop software, you have uh, like two hypotheses, right? One, that it's going to work like you designed it and that you have unit tests, you have uh, integration tests, you have user acceptance testing. And you can kind of test that. And then secondly, does it add the value that you'd hoped it had for the customer? Um, in AI, you have kind of like different problems here. So you can do offline testing. So you can take a snapshot of user interactions and data. Let's say we're testing a new ranking or sorting algorithm for an e-commerce store. Sure, you can do some offline testing. But what we found is that this offline testing is only a kind of indicator that gives you a certain level of confidence that the algorithm should perform better. What you find out is when you put it into production, you get results that are often differ quite significantly from the offline testing. Um, and the reason is, is because, you know, users' behavior changes, particularly when you present a new algorithm or a new set of outputs to them. The old data that you've captured before is working on the old algorithm. You produce a new algorithm. Your offline testing was the old data. And so these algorithms change the behavior of users. So it's actually, um, it's helpful to give you a kind of directional indication of whether the changes you're making are going to be positive, but you've got it. The only way you get real data is by testing in production. Well, so you're inadvertently answer, answering a question I asked. It was either last week or earlier this week, week yeah. on LinkedIn, which was the effectiveness of AI for testing. So looking at this from a different angle, one of the problems we have with application testing in general is user inputs. So yeah. we can't simulate a marketplace, not today. You know, I can, I can 
run back the last transactions from the past three months. But as you pointed out, that's that doesn't really account for when I change the interface. If yeah. I change the interface, maybe the way that the transactions were uh, made for the past three months won't play exactly the same way in the new software design or new system design, the yeah. new interface. Uh, users are different. So the question that I posed was, well, can we use AI to solve this problem? And I think that secondary problem is, yes, you can kind of uh, use AI to create chaos, but you're still <laughs> not going to get a represent. It's not real people. So you're not going to get a representation of how real people are going to engage with the system. Yeah. And the new, so the new way in which you, um, you experiment and develop software is by having consistent um, A-B testing all the time. You know, um, when you've got a certain amount of traffic, the traffic itself is just a huge gift to the software development team. And you actually have to say, like, let's say we have five or 10 ideas that we're developing right now. We've got to get an A-B test set up for each of these. The more traffic we give each experiment, the faster they're going to converge on a result. And we're going to understand whether their experiment's going to be successful or not. So often what I've seen is, is that you've got to um, allocate traffic to teams in order to speed up or slow down their experiments. And often your bottlenecks, the number of experiments you can run simultaneously by the amount of traffic that you can allocate. Um, and so, you know, when you're in this AI development world, it's all about the velocity and number of experiments that you can run on the traffic and the production data that you have. So let's talk about that rework. Because in the AB in the software world, when I'm doing AB testing, I can rapidly adapt to and change and update my code based on that AB testing. This is the you know new world that we live out of that we can you know deploy multiple times throughout the day and get this right. Yeah. In the AI world, I would imagine that retraining or adjusting a model based on inputs is that you know what uh, is that yeah. one of the areas where we're running into friction and in, in determining how long an ai project will last or take yeah and that's another um so you not only have the development phase of an ai algorithm where you're obviously you know um making changes to the algorithm making changes to the data to figure out what works well um but once you actually launch something into production and you're like, okay, this, this product's ready to go live. We've A-B tested it. We've got good results. You then have to, as a um, kind of production serving um, DevOps, keep the data fresh every day and retrain the model. Um, and so typically these models are trained in batch overnight, redeployed once a day. But then you have to like make sure that they're performing in ways that you're expecting because the data that goes to train them changes every single night. And their behavior might change every day. So the observability around AI algorithms and how they're performing is also very important. And I guess that batch process is one of the long tails, right? I make a change. I have to run the new uh, algo against my existing data set overnight that made that change. So this, this ability to rapidly de deploy throughout the day gets gated by how quickly I can retrain my model. Yeah, exactly. And um, typically the retraining of the models 
um, moves the window on the data. Let's say you want to train on the last seven or 14 days worth of data. So every day you've got a new data set to train on. Um, it requires a lot of GPUs um, typically. And so what folks do is they, they, they go overnight when traffic is very low on the whole time zone that they're operating in. And they might use spot instances and things like this. So, um, you know, retraining the models at two in the morning, you tend to find that the cost of the infra has gone down. Um, there's not as much demand for it. So um, nightly training of these models. When we're all asleep, the models are all training. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah, as a runner, I can appreciate that, uh, yeah. that analogy. So this kind of leads us into the second conversation, which is around multi-cloud and cloud infrastructure. I'm an infrastructure folk. Yeah. Right. And I can't help but to talk about infrastructure when we talk about massive amount of data, massive GPUs, CPUs. A lot of the pushback I've been getting from end customers around AI has been the investment in infrastructure. So as a AI SaaS provider, it makes economic sense for you folks to make that investment. But when I talk to enterprise customers, they're like, I'm just recovering from my Hadoop investment. Hadoop, (laughs) you know, this is, you know, we're not talking about AI, but my Hadoop investment. So they look towards the cloud, obviously, for this type of uh, activity and development. However, what caught my ear the last conversation was that you folks are in all the clouds yeah, or all the major clouds, at least and some of the minor clouds. And the first thing that jumped out to my thoughts was skills. Mm-hmm. That's how are you operating across multiple clouds? Yeah. And I'll give you a little bit of a background. So um, Algolia started uh, just over 10 years ago. And when we started, we were providing um, very high performance search infrastructure uh, globally to, you know, we have 17,000 customers all over the world. Um, And so what we do is um, when we started, there wasn't um, a sophisticated and as highly liquid cloud environment. So you got went to AWS or even Microsoft or Google back then, they had a very small number of VMs with very limited um, configurations. And it turns out that to run um, a high-performance search engine, you need very specific type of VM and um, memory configurations, which just weren't available in the cloud at the time. So we actually built our own um, systems inside data centers all over the world, right? We've worked with data center providers. I think we have like several dozen data center providers, um, thousands and thousands of machines. Um, and we built out this infrastructure ourselves. Um, and operated ourselves uh, through data center leasing and partners. Um, uh, until we got to the point where um, obviously we're uh, transforming um, the product into an AI first product. So all of the search product now is run off of large language models, uh, our re-ranking, our query categorization, all these things are AI models. And AI models are really tough to run in data centers um, because there's not an elastic environment to be able to um, leverage. Um, and so as we started to move to the cloud, what we realized is there was another big trend happening. Um, and this trend is, is that for every one of our customers, we're selling them infrastructure. Um, they have a preferred cloud. Some of them are Azure customers. Some of them are AWS. Some of them are GCP. But each of them um, wants a couple of things. 
Um, they want to have low latency between the infrastructure services they buy. So they want us to be deployed really close to where they are. Um, secondly, they want to minimize network egress and ingress charges between the application in their data center and any vendors like Algolia that they're interacting with. Because you've got to pay a lot of money to have the network traffic go in and out of your cloud. Um, and then thirdly, and this is, I think, probably one of the bigger things, is that um, our customers tend to have large um, multi-year um, enterprise purchase agreements with the cloud companies. So with a a uh, AWS, they might be, I think it's called EVP, where they've committed a certain amount of spend over a certain number of years. They want to be able to use those credits to buy from vendors like Algolia. Uh, and they can do that through the like AWS marketplace, the Azure marketplace. And a lot of these folks made very large commitments during COVID um, and have seen recently that they're underspending on those commitments. So we know that we need to be in every single cloud because A, that's where our customers want it from performance, but also from a cost perspective, they want to be able to bundle and buy under these big enterprise deals. So that's kind of a little bit of the history and the, um, the need why customers really want to buy in multiple clouds. Yeah, that's pretty consistent with what I've heard. One of the things that I've also heard, just a tangent a little bit, is because customers have this committed spin with the clouds, they're trying to figure out a tough problem. Like if I'm training models overnight using thousands of GPUs in a specific region, mm -hmm. then building a data center doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. However, if I have a very fairly static workload, let's say SAP, yep. I'm not developing against this. There's no CICD pipeline for SAP. Uh, it is just a static application. Maybe once or twice a year, I might have to upgrade the number of CPUs to it. But this is something that belongs in a data center. Use pa pattern is just different. Yeah. What I'm seeing is customers who are committed to a minimum cloud spend. They're trying to figure out, they, they're on this journey, this you know, multi-cloud or hybrid cloud journey. And they realize, you know what? I probably shouldn't move this application. I have no intentions of upgrading or changing my development motions to, to the public cloud. Let's keep it on-prem. So they're having a, a tough time balancing their commitment across the clouds. So as a CTO who obviously needs to optimize cost across three, three different clouds, how are you managing the problem of workload placement? Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, kind of customer demand. And then there's just your steady state of where you should run just steady state work workloads. Yeah. And it's not just workload. The other big thing to consider is where do you consolidate your data so that you can train mm. learning models because um, you want a single data set that you can train in a single cloud. So therefore, you're having to move data around between clouds as well. Um, and consolidate it into a single warehouse. So um, it gets even trickier than that. But um, one way that we think about this is um, you have customers who are, um, let's say, um, cloud native, and they're passionate about buying your product in their cloud of choice. And then you have ones who are cloud agnostic, and they don't really care. You know, it could be in any cloud. They don't mind. <laughs> they just want a good price and a good product. Um, our kind of gut feeling is, is about 80% of people are like cloud agnostic, 
and 20% are really cloud kind of native and want to make sure it's local. Um, and so we've come, we actually have like um, a lot of the benefit of coming out of data centers. We wanted to make sure we could run in all the clouds. So we're very much a um, working in containers, um, working with Kubernetes um, and other technologies that are supported across all the clouds so that our workloads are easily moved between them. We can move customers between clouds. Um, we can, um, in particular, have a lower DevOps having to run between each of these different clouds. Um, but then we, you know, sometimes we have some issues where it's like um, there's a managed service, for example, we'd really like to use to simplify our lives. Sometimes it's not great having to manage and run DevOps for everything. Um, so then we try to figure out how to abstract away uh, the cloud-specific implementation details of each of these, um, whether that's like, um, you know, uh, object storage or like database as a service, these kind of things. But it gives us huge leverage to be cloud mobile, right? We can move workloads between clouds. And it means that when we have negotiations, pricing, um, regional availability problems, you know, some of the clouds don't have a great availability in one region and cloud, another cloud does. Um, I know in Black Friday, for example, um, you get a lot of customers who are going in and they're buying up all the instances ahead of time. And you can find hmm. yourself like lacking instances in one cloud. So having that kind of mobility gives you a lot of optionality in both negotiating with each of the cloud vendors, um, moving your workloads to the cheapest um, or sometimes the most available or liquid pool of instances. Um, and um, I think it's actually really good for your customers as well to be able to have that cloud native experience when they need it. But um, yeah, so from, yeah. I love the approach that you're kind of abstracting away from the clouds in general, where you can make sense. Yes. Uh, but there are areas where you can't abstract away from a governance perspective. Are you, have you formed kind of a platform engineering group to handle that, uh, you know, to maybe add a shim between the clouds and your developers focusing on solving the business challenges and then another team kind of providing a developer experience uh, so that they, they're not thinking about which cloud is this going to run on and more about the problem. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> we built um, in our SRE team, we actually have several different layers. We have an <clears throat> infrastructure as a service team. Um, who are dealing with the bare metal um, and the differences in bare metal between different clouds. Um, we then have like a platform as a services team that are <laughs> providing the application layer um, agnostic kind of uh, interfaces. Uh, and then we obviously have the application teams that are um, serving and running each of the different applications. So we have kind of created a kind of three layer abstraction um, inside the company to give us flexibility to take the hardware and database um, specific implementations away. Um, but I got to say that, you know, things like Kubernetes has been just an enormous um, benefit and uh, for um, the industry to be able to kind of move to this uh, cloud agnostic and containerization of applications. These technologies are now mature enough that you can get pretty similar implementations uh, across all three cloud providers. But also, I got to say, you know, the, the big three cloud providers are significantly more expensive than data centers. Mm. Uh, 
And um, some of the data centers are moving from bare metal to offer Kubernetes and cloud uh, object storage. And they're kind of like moving closer to the cloud companies, but they're not raising their prices at the same level as the Amazons and Googles of the world have. So there's a, there's a much more fluid difference between bare metal data center and fully managed cloud services. There are a lot of options in between now that are very interesting. Yeah, we run our hybrid cloud or our lab in a colo and we switched colos specifically for that reason. There are services that are undifferentiated that we don't want to manage. Yeah. Object storage is a great example of that. Like yeah. the there's probably just really one uh, object storage open source company that we all go get uh, our object storage from is almost always boiling down to MinIO. And I don't want to manage MinIO. It's object storage. It's, you know, yeah. it's undifferentiated. It's, I should just have a target that I'm writing to and I'm getting data from and I'm deleting data. Yeah. It's not unless, that complicated. Unless you're running Dropbox or something like that, you really shouldn't ever have to think about file storage infrastructure. Exactly. And as we move up the stack, those are the types of abstractions and services that I'm advising customers to depend on. Like, unless there's a really great reason to manage your own storage systems, uh, you have some type of scale that make that that makes the math make sense. The, this, this in between, yeah, maybe not putting it all in S3 is economical, but... Yeah. You know, uh, these kind of off-prem or near-cloud solutions are giving some really great options. Yeah, and you know, when AWS launched, they were pretty clear that there were only about five or six core services that uh, you needed to build any application in the world. Um, and now they have like 200 different services. <laughs> and so it's great to see some of these data center companies getting back to this, like, actually, there are only like five or six core services you really need, and you need to do them really well and offer them at a very affordable price. Yeah, I, I just sent out a note to my mail, mailing list today that was basically challenging this notion that as we're thinking about moving workloads from the public cloud to a co-location or on-prem, whatever the situation is, we don't need to recreate the public cloud. Yeah. You know, we made that mistake seven or eight years ago of thinking that we could recreate the public cloud. And even with all of the tool tooling with Kubernetes and the CNCF landscape, we could build a really great cloud, but do we really need one for the workloads that are best suited on-prem? Yeah. Have you done that calculus for your team? Kind of like, you know what? Yeah, we could build this and it would be cheaper, but yeah. Well, I mean, I think um, you, you've got to think about where a lot of the value is being added right now. And, you know, object storage is so commoditized that I don't think necessarily paying significant premiums um, for a public cloud are necessarily um, the best ROI. But if you're doing something like um, pretty complex AI workloads, um, I think those are things where the public cloud are really going to shine right now. Um, the Googles and Amazons of the world where um, getting access to this type of hardware has become extremely challenging. Um, NVIDIA has a big shortage of a lot of these chips. Um, there's no way that you or I are going to be able to go out there and buy them. And even if we could, you know, the amount of capital and the amortization stuff, it wouldn't make sense. Um, but also, I think, you know, uh, a lot of the tooling 
um, and frameworks and um, automation that um, the cloud providers are offering around these LLMs um, and inference serving and observability. There's a huge amount of value added in these clouds in the AI space right now because everything's really complex still. It's also new that having a lot of it automated and handed as a managed service to you, I actually think makes a lot of sense um, and deserves some of the uh, premium pricing that the clouds um, kind of offer for it. But basics like file storage, I think, you know, this is a pretty competitive commoditized market. So Sean, we could easily go on for another half an hour. I, I have a ton of questions for you, for someone who's practically doing this day in and day out, there's governance, there's uh, employee retention. This is an extremely competitive market for this skill set. When you look at everything from your AI engineers to your platform engineers, you kind of have to be one of the world's largest search engines to justify a lot of this investment and opportunity. There's deltas between there's delta between kind of your business drivers and many of the folks that listen to the show. But I do want to leave the folks with kind of how they contact and get in touch with uh you and if they have search needs how 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 do they reach out sure yeah you can um hit me up on twitter at sean mulaney um or on linkedin i'm very responsive to both those channels um or come and register on our website and you know hit the contact sales button we'll definitely uh reach out to you and talk to you about how to bring ai into your search box all right, I need to uh, hit them up and bring AI into their into my search box for my uh, blog post. They're getting insane to search now. Actually, it's not that complicated. If you want to learn more about the CTO advisor, you want to search for other AI-related content, data center-related content, you can follow us on the web, the CTO advisor. I have a nice old-school search box in the right-hand corner, nothing fancy. You can also uh, hit me up on Twitter. DMs are open at CTO Advisor. I still use that platform, and I am extremely responsive on LinkedIn. Until then, talk to you next CTO Advisor podcast. Sean, thank you. Thank you so much.